Hello, my fanist friends. Welcome to my podcast feed. Powered by ACAS Plus, here's a joke from my son. What did the bum say to the other bum? That's a bummer. You know, not for everyone. Uh, so, uh, look, thanks to everyone who's come to see the previews of Can I Have My Ball Back. It's been going really, really well, and uh, I'm really pleased with how the show's turning out. It's officially on tour now from Wednesday. I'll be at the Leicester Square Theatre. A couple of tickets left. Lots of press coming to that one. It'd be lovely to sell out, but there are a few other London gigs not selling as well. So if you're going to come to London... Maybe look up those other London gigs. And then this week I'll be in St Albans on Thursday, Gloucester on Friday, Chorley on Saturday, which is sold out. You can join the waiting list. And Glasgow on Sunday, two shows. I think the earlier show is sold out. Check with the venue, but the later show has some availability. Come along if you can. If you enjoy these podcasts and like them being free, then the great way to pay me back is to buy a ticket to a show or buy a download or a book from gofasterstripe.com. But you can just keep listening for free as well. That pays me back also. So, you know, no no pressure. But I'd love to see you there. If you just know me from the podcast and don't know me as a stand-up, I'm pretty good as a stand-up. It's a good show. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's only made about seven men faint so far. So, you know, are you brave enough to take the challenge? Let's sit back, relax and enjoy whichever podcast you're listening to now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who this week irked to postman is Richard Herring. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You should have killed me last year. Welcome. Welcome to uh, welcome to another series. It's still going on. I don't know. It's got recommissioned. I don't know how. Uh, to a new. A new series, series 11 of Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast. I was hanging around with Platinum uh, from uh, the, I hardly need to tell you, from the Blazing Squad. And um, <laughs> we met down by the crossroads. That's where we met up. Uh, he calls it uh, Rahalasabas. I don't know if that's going to catch up. And uh, yes, very, I did this week, I irked a postman. I, weirdly enough, if you listened, uh, there was an audio special from 
uh, the Wells Comedy Festival, and one of my new emergency questions was, have you ever irked a postman? And I hadn't irked a postman when I came up with that question, but I'd, since doing that podcast, I irked a postman, and he was very irked. I have to say, and it was your fault, because I'd spent all week uh, signing these new emergency question books that are available from gofasterstrike.com, 500 questions plus, uh, <laughs> that you can entertain your friends and family with, uh, and I'd agreed to sign and, and add extra questions to about 200 of these. And then I had all these envelopes, and I kind of just posted them all in the post boxes near my house and, uh, and filled all the post boxes up. <laughs> and uh, I kind of thought, I did it at night, and I thought, oh, they'll come in the early, early in the morning and empty the post boxes, because I you know, remember the 1970s when there used to be more than one postal collection. <laughs> and then about five o'clock in the evening, I went out with, t- I had 10 bags of these, uh, <laughs> bag for life bags of these things that I had to deliver. They've closed down all the post offices in Shepherd's Bush. So I, I wasn't going to take... I took two of them to the post office, but it would have been five miles to take all of them to the post office and back. Uh, and so I went, and I saw him at the van. I ran up and said, oh, mate, can you put these in the van? He went, no, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're very selfish. You're a very selfish man. Why have you done this? And I irked We had a long... Yeah, I, I might turn it into a routine uh, for my new show, Over Again 50, because ten years ago I had a fight with a university lecturer on the streets of Liverpool as I was entering my midlife crisis. It was quite embarrassing... It was, it, it, there was a, it's a long story, but he, it was basically his fault, and he'd been unpleasant, and he sort of attacked me, and so I fought him back, uh, and, and went to fight him before I remembered that I didn't really know how to fight. Uh, and, I, and we just sort of windmilled around about a fire. I, and I kicked him in the balls quite a lot, and uh, I did punch him in the head once. It was brilliant. Really, if you've never punched anyone, do punch someone. It's fucking great. Uh, and I, got, I, I had all my shirt ripped off me and he got, sort of ran away and the police came and then they, they, they sort of were laughing at me. And, uh, <laughs> and I got in the cab to, <laughs> to leave, uh, to go back to my hotel and the cab driver in Liverpool genuinely said, that was the funniest fight I've ever seen. <laughs> so uh, it's quite different. Ten years on, nearly 50, I'm irking postman. So um, uh, do, do, if, you want to, if you are at home, do please... Uh, d- d- Check out this. Well, we'll do some questions from it, I'm sure, during the show, so you'll uh, get to see this. We've got a new, we've got a new question book. The, uh, the Lannister book is full, uh, and this is a Tiny Rick book, which in Wales no one knew what that was, and I'm disappointed in London no one knows. It's Tiny Rick. Tiny Rick. Yeah, come on, man. Rick and Morty, you've got to like that. So let's crack on, because we've got quite a good first guest, and so I'll stop blathering on. Uh, my first guest of the new series, he's probably best known... Uh, as a panellist on the panel show Scruples from 1988. I don't think, I don't know why. We'll find out today why he's never done any panel shows since then. <laughs> I don't know what happened <laughs> to put him off. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome my guest tonight, Paul Merton, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Paul Merton, Sit down. Paul Merton. Here, pull up a hold a microphone like in the old days. Paul Merton, it's Paul Merton! <laughs> Paul Blind Merton. Thank you very much. So, um, we'll get out of the way because I'm sure you get, you get asked about this all the time. But what do you remember about uh, the performing in Scruples? I met John McVicker. Did you? Who was uh, again, John McVicker in the 60s was uh, on the front cover of the tabloid newspapers as the most dangerous man in Britain. He was a, he was a bank robber and he yeah. did use uh, he, he, you know, shotguns. He didn't fire them, but he sort of had them in his hand when he walked into the bank. 
and uh, threatened to use them. So he was sort of seen as a violent man. Uh, he then left prison and then sort of, I think he studied sociology or something or, or got a degree. And then, and then so I, I knew this, I, I just, you know, he was a guy that was doing this program. So I, I met him. Um, and I realised that sort of it's a class thing really, but I had, in a strange way, because he was from sort of Clapham and I was sort of near sort of that sort of area, um, we, I had more in common with him than I did with, say, like Stephen Fry. Right. You know, even though he was a bank robber, uh, John McVicker, not Stephen Fry. Yeah. Um, he did that we, credit card thing, though, didn't he, Stephen yes, Fry? He did. So he was, but he it was, was a bit of a wrong one as well. But it's the sort of, uh, it's the one of the working class ways out, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it was interesting. And uh, I met Nicholas Parsons, and from that, I sort of inveigled my way into being invited onto just a minute so yeah. it all sort of worked out you know yeah that's nice good you, you, you go to, you do these things for a reason if, you, if it works out <laughs> it's great <laughs> anyone remember scruples the tv show scruples no yeah it's got a lot of <laughs> some big fans some big fans of scruples and i didn't remember that one i've been reading your autobiography uh, yes. all weekend which is quite unusually i just read the first bit yes. when i've got a guest and then, and then blag it yeah blag it from there but yours was pretty good so i read the whole thing uh it's uh, called Only When I Laugh yes. and it's, uh, it's, it's very well worth reading it's very uh, it's funny but it's, mm. it's, it's also rather emotional and uh, there's some, some beautiful bits in it as well but uh, so uh, uh, I'm quite interested in those early days of stand-up which I'll always go back to but you were, you were there as a punter really right at the beginning of alternative comedy yes it was sort of the, hist- the history of comedy as we see it today is very much uh, affected by the opening of the comedy store in 1979 it, it's still running up and down you know opposite the Prince of Wales Theatre it is now but when it opened in 1979, essentially it was a democracy. It was a gong show, which meant that anybody could get up on stage, anybody here could go along to the comedy store, give your name to the compare, and go up on stage. And if, the, you know, if, you, if you were funny, the audience laughed. If you weren't funny or nervous, there was a gong, and off you went, and that was it. But for those people who that could sort of get through that sort of baptism gong by fire, as it were... It's a chance to be on stage because you can be, you can want to be a comedian, you can want to be in comedy, but until you get stage time, until you're really in front of an audience, it's all theory. Yeah. So that's that. That because when I wanted to be a comedian from a very early age, when I was about four or five, I, I saw clowns at Olympia, uh, Bertram Mill Circus, I think it was. Just after the war, um, uh, the circuses were huge, huge live entertainment. And this still went into the early sixties. So when I saw it, it was about. 3,000 people in this huge, massive tent at Earl's Court, Olympia. Uh, and, or just, I suppose it was inside the building there rather than a tent. It was obviously the exhibition hall. And I'd never been anywhere where 3,000 people gathered. I used to go to a church on Sunday. It was my parents' idea, and I had to go along with them. <laughs> and that was always just boring and Latin and smelt of incense. And here was sort of like adults who are previously, I thought, were people who said, no, don't do that, come down, that's, that's, no, leave that alone. Suddenly they had big boots, they had colourful hair that went up at the side, they, drew, they drove cars where the doors fell off, they threw sausages at each other, they <laughs> ran towards the audience with a bucket of water that turned out to be confetti at the last minute. And just hearing the sound of thousands of people laughing was, was, it was a pivotal moment in my life, right. absolutely. And I wanted to be part of that machine that created that laughter yeah, yeah. I would have been very happy to have been the guy that walked on and picked up the wheels of the car and then ran off with them again just to clear the ring yeah. that would have been a fantastic job you know, um, so I was completely hooked by that one moment really, it really yeah. was something and then so you, you left school, I mean it's, it's interesting that the book goes, goes through all this but you're at school and 
Obviously, there's no... I mean, I, I was the same. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of similarities because <laughs> I was very obsessed mm. with comedy. You're actually almost exactly 10 years older than me. Yes. You're, you're about to turn uh, 60. Yes, I am. In yes. three days before I turn 50. We'll yes. never be on the same decade as each other. No, we'll never be able to compare notes. Life's a real fucker, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I hope that hasn't brought too many people down. It's, uh, I wasn't expecting to get this emotional this early. <laughs> We'll maybe talk about that uh, later, but it's but so you know, but you at school, you know, going to comprehensive schools, yes. uh, there was never there was no real path. I mean, I had the same thing as you. I think mm. you go to the careers office and they're giving you pam. I think they wanted me to work in a bank and they wanted yes. you to sh- stack shelves. Well, there was no sort of like before the comedy store in '79. You had your options to become a comedian, were to uh, perhaps get into Cambridge, Cambridge Footlights, because uh, people had done that in the past. It was Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Alan Bennett. Jonathan Miller, uh, holiday camps. I mean, Dave Allen started off doing holiday camps yeah. as a red coat back in the early 60s because uh, that was one of the options. Fringe theatre wasn't really something that, you know, you couldn't... Northern men's clubs, working men's clubs in the north, that would have been, wouldn't have been any good. So it really was sort of the... Not for me, you know. I mean, like, <laughs> as, a, as a 19-year-old boy, a very shy boy from Morden, end of the northern line, imagine me on stage in Manchester. Get the fuck off that stage <laughs> if you're not going to make us laugh. Come on! The stripper's on in five minutes. She gets paid by the hour. Now, come on, move on. You know, I would have died within an instant. You know, it wouldn't have. I, you know, that would have been it. Um, so yeah, it was. Uh, I can't remember what the question was now, but uh, <laughs> we sort of got there in the end. But yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, there, there was, was people no avenue through, was there? Yeah, there so were no other avenues through. Uh, there's also a poverty of ambition at school. I remember sort of a kid at one day the, the maths teacher said to the class, he said, um, "Okay, this was in the sixth form. I'm going to go around and ask you what you're going to do when you leave school." And he turned to this one boy in the front row who was sitting next to his friend, and he said, "This boy said, what are you going to do?'" He says, "I'm going to work for Sunlight Laundry." And the teacher says, well, well, why are you going to work for me? He says, well, they're just down the end of my road. And And the teacher said, that is the most pathetic answer I've heard in 35 years of teaching. You're going to get a job. You're going to base your career. There's something at the end of your road. That's awful. He turned to the kid next to him and said, what about you? He says, I'm going to work with him. (laughs) You know, it was true. But so you were quite quite shy... Yes, but that's, that, 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 is, that does seem to be a sort of uh, a contradiction. But shy people, initially who are shy, are quite good. Well, are drawn towards performance because although there's a large number of people as there are here, I'm speaking as you know, I'm on the stage. I've got a microphone. I'm not speaking one to one in a room somewhere. So it's easier to be, uh, I suppose, exhibitionist. Is, is to be fair in front yeah. of a, a crowd, an audience, rather than individuals. Sure, but you were listening. I like you were listening to comedy records and. Mm. And, and when I, having lots of you had uh, films you project onto your wall and yes, so you you were Trying kind of very absorb int- a comedy whichever medium it was PG Woodhouse yeah. books or whatever you sure, know. Sure, sure. And I, I was interested. This is just on a sidebar for me that you made your own uh, snooker table. Yes. Uh, uh, did you play? Did you play with ping pong balls? Yeah, they haven't got a lot of weight <laughs> to them, so you, you've got to hit them quite hard yeah. to make the move. It was a sort of Sabutio table football pitch, yeah. you know, sort of things. So a green baize, and you put books down and sort of. With, Gaps between them for the pockets, and, yeah. the, and the end of a golf club. You not, you know. It yeah. was, uh, did you play against any other people, or did you just play against yourself? <laughs> it was always interesting to play a really difficult snooker, which you then had to try and get out of. Yeah, you know. So that was quite fun. I still do it as an adult. Uh, <laughs> that's one of my other podcasts. That I went, I'll get you on that one sometime. Be confused. Yeah, I played myself at snooker in another podcast. Don't worry. On a, uh, on a full-size table? Uh, no, no. Six, well, six by three is regulation uh, self-playing snooker size. <laughs> six by three. That's the regulation. 
I use proper <laughs> balls not made out of ping pong balls. Well, yeah, yeah. Six by three. You know? <laughs> but you saw. That's you... Like they sell that under my first junior snooker table <laughs> label. <laughs> <laughs> the one that I bought, I did a couple of uh, frames on tour this last tour yes. in the interval, and I started to buy a snoop table in, and it was only when I got it onto the stage I realised it was sort of at the height for a five year But I was playing for about five minutes before I realised I am quite small, so, you know, it, was, it, it suited me. Uh, but uh, anyway, so you managed to... You, managed to you, get, you gave up your job in the civil service to... Mm. to to have a cracker. This is like this is your right, life, it isn't is. it? Yeah, I've got a little. Do you recognise this voice? <laughs> I had to fuck off the Canada to get rid of him. It's Uncle Ernie. <laughs> <laughs> but you saw you saw all these early days at the at the comic com, comedy com, comedy store. Yes. So you yes. saw Alexi Sale as the, you, you uh, I the saw book. Alexi Sale. Yeah, at the comic strip, uh, which was shortly after the comedy store, because Don at the comedy store wasn't paying anybody. And so they, they formed the comic strip. That's how it first started. And they played the was Raymond's Review Bar. Yeah. And Alexi was, he was this extraordinary. It was, uh, I suppose, half the size of where we are now. Maybe it's like an 80-seater or something. And uh, a tiny stage, but he was this sort of, this would be 1981, 82, 81, I think. And uh, he had this very tight suit. And he this pork pie hat, Liverpudlian. Really sort of quite sort of, not fat, but muscular. Stocky, I think is the right word. And um, at this point, this was still when we had, you know, with the exception of someone like Biddy Connolly, who, who, you know, there was, you know, Des O'Connor, and it was light entertainment kind of sort of uh, stand-up is what you had. And so there was Lexi doing these jokes with the most improbable punchlines. Uh, I live in Stock Newington. Uh, I work for a magazine. Do you work on a magazine, Watson, in Stock Newington? It's written on the front page, fuck all. You know... <laughs> Another one was, uh, yeah, I thought to myself, I might dress as a clown, you know, get great big boots, paint my face when I'd have a red nose, and I thought to myself, it did fuck all for Mussolini. <laughs> Never heard a gag before where the punchline was Mussolini. <laughs> you know, extraordinary. It's great being Jewish, you know, because you can just make up names, you know, for holidays, and they don't know at work, you know. You can say, I can't come into work today, I've got to hack a day, I've got to sit in the back garden with a pot pie on me head. <laughs> And it was the anger with which he uttered pork pie, you know, like, <laughs> pork pie, you know. It was just, it was astonishing. Yeah. And uh, one routine which doesn't sound particularly witty, but got to the point where you were just really just begging him to stop because it was just, you were laughing so much. And it was, I think he called it stream of tastelessness. And basically it's just like every single swear word, nothing else. <laughs> Say it over and over again, repetitive, repetitive, and getting faster and faster. So we just start off with something like, fuck, shit, wank, gun, bollocks, and, and just and get faster and faster over the course of a minute as his arms started pumping. It was the funniest thing you'd ever seen in your life <laughs> because it was utterly pointless, relentless, scary, <laughs> completely no material at all, but just really just went for it. And it was, uh, it was an astonishing moment. Yeah. It, it was... Uh, that, and that was something that Alexi had never thought of being a comedian. The comedy store was opened up, as I said, in 79, advertised, do you think you can be a comedian on the underground and stuff like that? And Alexi was one of the people that, that turned up. You know. There was sort of an astonishing array. I mean, we were talking about a little bit about this backstage, because I started doing On the Circuit in about 1990, and a lot, there was still a little vestige of this left, but there was a lot of speciality acts and, cra- and basically crazy... Crazy people or people doing just uh, what you know. There was, a, there was a guy called the Ice Man who was still going when I was going. Who yes. just melted a block of ice by yes. lying on it. 
for yes. 20 minutes. That, that was the act. It was 40 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes if the air conditioning was particularly fierce, it might take over an hour. <laughs> but he would do some mini blowtorch and thing. That was... People would book him. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. you know, it was... Uh... But you, you mentioned someone I had... You had mentioned... Uh, was the... Uh, Hubert and Hilary Haddock. I Hubert and Hilary Haddock, yes. That was uh, Fish and Fire Fantasy. Right. Um, they would, I mean, this was, because most of these acts, when, when the uh, original people like Alexis Sell, Rick Mel, Aid Edmondson, Nigel Planer, you know, all the young ones guys, stopped playing the comedy store, there was a gap. There was a venue that was open for, you know, one night a week, but no acts. So that's where the Covent Garden acts like to come in. So they were... None of them are really stand-ups. They were, by the nature of being sort of, you know, open-air acts, they're visual, lots of whistling goes on (laughs) to grab attention and stuff, and just doing crazy things like setting your hat on fire and all this kind of thing. And one of the things that Hubert and Hilary Haddock did and the fish and fire fantasy, they came out to their theme music was... I mean, this was another difference, because comedians don't really... Uh, these days particularly they bother with theme music entrance music no. particularly I suppose it's called we don't really bother with it do we but they had this sort of like March of the Mods by Joe Loss which was that sort of beat to it and they come on holding sprats in their hands <laughs> dressed in sort of like I suppose sort of semi sort of like Knights of Arabia costumes you know silk sort of balloony trousers and, yeah. and blouses and stuff and um, the fish and fire fantasy was basically them sort of, you know, eating fish off each other's stomachs and things like this. And just before they came on one night at the comedy store, a man who was sitting, this is why you should always be careful when you heckle somebody, to have a quick look round. <laughs> this guy shouted out to the compere, give me some variety. Now, just seconds after he said that, he found himself being whacked across the face with a sprat. <laughs> Being welded by a man, it looked like he'd come out of sort of Thousand and One Arabian Nights. He yeah. said, "Well, he wanted some fucking variety. How about that?" <laughs> and they went on and did. Uh, you know, I, I was at the vegetarian restaurant in Highgate where they were banned because they were doing fish. <laughs> you know, it was sort of. You know, it, it was. You know, it was. Yeah. It was a sort of. It was a visual stuff. And did you, they throw them into the audience? Yeah, as well? you, you, you always. Must have been quite annoying thing. Yeah, you've always put them on last. Yeah, but then you know. Then the audience can go home, not sitting there amongst sprats. <laughs> You know, like doing a gig on a trawler or something. <laughs> Here comes the net again, Ray. <laughs> uh, then you, you, you came up with the... You, know, you, you went up and did the gong show and... Uh, no, did, I well, didn't, know. I, I sort of... Oh, well, the, my confidence was not so strong that I, I waited till the gong show stopped because I didn't okay. want to... I, I, I desperately wanted to be on stage. What yeah. I didn't need to be was on stage uh, not having confidence and somebody shouting something out and going, oh, fuck, that's made it even harder. So it was only when the policy was eventually dropped, because there were, there were better people coming. It was one night when Alexi got gonged. You know, he right. said, you can't gong me, I'm the fucking compare. You know? <laughs> and so it could sometimes get out of hand if you give the audience, if, and also if they're a bit pissed, if you yeah, give them yeah. too much control, then suddenly people that are good are getting gonged off. You know? So it became a sort of, in the end... I mean, they still do it as a sort of once-a-month yeah, yeah. Monday thing. Yeah. You know, but that's, that's better than doing it all the time. Yeah. Do you, remember your, do you remember the act, the LSD policeman? Just, just, yes, there was um, a, a, a moment, I suppose, I, should, I can probably call it a moment of inspiration. I was, I was waiting for a bus. Uh, that wasn't the moment of inspiration. <laughs> I've seen other people do it over the years. <laughs> and it was raining a bit like tonight, and I, and I suddenly remembered this thing popped. I saw, I, I just to just amuse myself, I was standing at this bus stop in the rain waiting for a 118 bus, and I started talking like a kind of sort of... Uh, 
comedy stock policeman. Oh yeah, what are you doing in standing in the shop window? It's all ready now. What's going on here? I just stood up my, just to myself. And then, out of nowhere, I suddenly remembered a documentary that I'd seen about five years before. I think it happened in, a, in Wales. There was a, a, a police operation called Operation Julie, where essentially they busted this LSD-making factory somewhere in 1977. I think it was Wales. And these... These coppers, not knowing what was going on, went in and busted this, this hallucinogenic LSD factory and inhes- inhaled the dust, ingested the dust. And then after the successful arrest, a couple of them went to the pub. And then this was in the documentary, the bit I remember. So these two men are in the pub, these two policemen, <laughs> and one bloke is looking straight into the camera and he says, uh, I was having a pint of beer with uh, Detective Inspector Norris. <laughs> well, I noticed that my pint of beer was getting bigger. <laughs> And I I immediately saw the comic contrast between hallucinations where anything can happen (laughs) and the down-to-earth copper who's bemused by it. And this was shortly after the um, Brixton riots in 1981. It was 81, yeah. And so this was the first thing I did. I'll try and remember it as much as as I can. Um, So essentially, I I came on. I had a pair of pyjamas on, a pair of striped pyjamas. I had one of those policemen's helmets that you buy in tourist shops, you know, a little plastic policeman's helmet, just to sort of, again, to be sort of kind of... I wasn't sure whether I'd be funny, but I thought what I was saying would be funny, and I thought if I looked visually funny or interesting, then it 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 all helps, you know, your first time on stage. So um, it went very well. Uh, I came on and I said... um, uh, on Wednesday, for, I was a policeman giving evidence in court. So it also meant that I could have the notebook there <laughs> in case I forgot the words. So I, I try to remember, think of everything to, to, you know, to conquer nerves if they happened. So here it was something like this. On Wednesday, 14th of October last, while Pat rolling along Streatham High Road, I observed a motor vehicle illegally parked outside the all-night Clement Attlee massage parlour. <laughs> I questioned the occupant, who said, urinate off, you effing love child. (laughs) The driver then elopogised and offered me a yellow, candy-covered chocolate confectionery, known to the uniformed branch as a smarty. (laughs) I accepted the smarty and swallowed it. A smarty I now know contained an hallucinogenic drug. 35 minutes later, while sitting aboard an intergalactic spaceship bound for the planet of Lucy, <laughs> I observed Constable Parrish approaching me disguised as a fortnight's holiday in Benidorm. <laughs> Hello, Constable Parrish, I said out of the back of my neck. <laughs> and what news of my Lord Buckingham? <laughs> to which Constable Parrish replied, you stupid git... Get down off that bus shelter, you stupid git. I then ate Constable Parish. <laughs> I was enticed down from the bus shelter by the very lovely Miss Marilyn Monroe, former screen starlet. <laughs> we kissed formally until Marilyn, sweet, tender Marilyn, revealed herself as Mr Brinsley O'Cobo, scrap metal dealer from Peckham. <laughs> A panda patrol car flew past and three large uniformed pandas got out. (laughs) I was charged by Chief Constable Warren of gross indecency 
impersonating a Spaniard, <laughs> acting the goat, and eating a police constable while in the course of his duty. I burst into hysterical laughter, which lasted five months. And that was basically it. That was it. <laughs> That's amazing. Hey. It's very, I mean, it's a very intricate and it's a very well-written routine as well. I it's took used, six weeks to write it once yeah. I had the initial idea. <laughs> yeah. Sitting in the bed sit, you know, over and over again, because again, it was the idea. It was about three and a half minutes long, I think. And the idea was that every line is either a joke line or lead into a joke line. So even if I'm not funny, if what I'm saying is funny, then... And the thing was, it was, uh, you know, because it is a, it's a difficult job to do, and it's very easy to be put off, you know, when you're not doing very well. But that first gig at the Comedy Store, which was just that three and a half minutes at the end, going on at half past one, I mean, it went... It's this, it stormed, you know, it went really well, and... and you know, they wanted me back on again. I, I, I went back on and did it again. I, I, there was nothing, I, did, I had no other material. Was, <laughs> and I walked all the way home from Soho, uh, from Wardour Street, all the way to Streatham. I got back about seven in the morning. It was around about April time. And it was just... I mean, it got me through every bad gig over the next 18 months, of which there were many, because I couldn't live up to my opening. It was, uh, it, I had some good jokes, but nothing that was as strong as that for ages. You know. And, you know, you're playing to an audience who usually saw people melting ice and throwing fish around. Well, so, exactly. You know, they must have been amazed you could talk. The, the fact <laughs> he's impersonating somebody else. <laughs> but it's sort of also interesting because it's a little bit of the, persona, the Paul Merton... Yes, I realised, I thought that the policeman mustn't find what he's saying funny. Yeah. Uh, because he wouldn't. And also, it's a kind of sort of... Um, so, yeah, it, or, without really thinking about it, I did kind of set a sort of stamp, I suppose, because it was the most successful thing, first very early on that I did. Probably the uh, most successful thing I ever did in stand-up, certainly. Um, and, yeah, it was because it was one of those things, again, when you're watching television, when you're growing up, and you're, you're trying to work out the theory of what it is, you know. Um, but there were no rules in comedy, because every exception, everything you think of, there is an exception. I mean, generally speaking, I didn't like growing up comedians that laughed at their own stuff, you know. But Billy Connolly does, and Billy Connolly is an exception, you know. He's an extraordinary comedian, one of the biggest, most influential comedians of the last, since the war. Um, so you can't say it's wrong because he does it, you know. Uh, so, uh, but it, it, I found that if there's a, if there's a sort of, you say something that's like my favourite line in the whole thing was I saw Constable Parrish came towards me disguised as a fortnight's holiday in Benidorm. Yeah, <laughs> if you look puzzled as to why people are laughing or embarrassed or slightly humiliated, it just makes it funnier. Yeah, that's the idea anyway. No, it's 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 a pr- brilliant. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I, I, well, I love, I love the, the books, honestly, about your teenagers and, and your obsession with comedy, which, you know, I think... Because I think, like, a lot of comedy fans do feel like... A, I mean, I did as well. You feel isolated because everyone else is into pop music, which you were later, but you, you yes. weren't at the time. Yeah, yeah. And so you listen to comedy records and sort of obsessing over comedians, and it's a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, in a well, way, compared I, to other people. But, yeah, it is. It can nice. be a bit sort of... I mean, magicians, you know, you, yeah. you know, you, they, they, they tend to sort of... When they're adolescents, they, they tend to stay in bedrooms practising card tricks over yeah. and over again on their own. And people who are into comedy listen to Hancock CDs or whatever it would be yeah. these days, you know. Uh, and so... But it's just, it's, it's incredibly fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Why does a line, there is a line in Round the Horn. Now, you know, um, they did the show here, didn't they, about 10 years ago, recreation of the radio series Round the Horn. Now, Kenneth Williams uh, and Q Paddock are playing two camp characters called Julian and Sandy. And the guy, Kenneth Horn, comes round to visit them. And this is a joke which, on paper, there doesn't, it doesn't appear to make sense. And it's only the rhythm of the performers, which I'll try and approximate if I can, that gets it across. So Kenneth Horn is in there, and he's, he's, he's inquiring about theatre tickets. And uh, he says, what else have you got? And they say, well, there's your actual... They say, no, is it? Um, um, hang on, let me think. I always remember the punchline, because you always get that right, and then you're OK. <laughs> but let me just figure out the... Um, yes, that's it. He says, so Kenneth Horn says... Um, so he said, anything else you're interested in? He said, um... Uh, yes, uh, Mozart. He said, please yourself when you book the seats. <laughs> now, it doesn't mean anything, yeah. Mozart, please yourself when you book the seats, but in the hands of Kenneth Williams, in his voice, the audience roar. Yeah, yeah. Mozart, please yourself when you book the seats. It, it, as I proved, <laughs> <laughs> it means very little. But that's, that's the exchange, and it works. And it's, it's, so why does that work? It's the persona of Kenneth Williams. It sounds sort of... Perhaps it sounds rude, and it isn't rude. It's the yeah. name of a composer. But you, you, in a rule book, that wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. But it, just the rhythm of it, the lines of it, the whatever. You know. Well, it's very, I think that's what's fascinating about comedy, because like, one line in the... You know, one comedian will be incredibly offensive, and people will be very upset about it, and a different comedian can say exactly the same thing, and people will love it. It's about how you feel about the person, I suppose. It's about the persona of the... Ca- it's, but yes. it's the relationship you've built up with an audience. So something yes. like, someone like Barry Cryer can say something that's really filthily upsetting, but his, his audience will still love him for it, you know. The half of them won't know what it means. They won't, didn't they? <laughs> and they'll hear it again in five minutes. Uh, but my, fa- my favourite... Uh, the favourite one of these was your obsession with Michael Crawford. Yes. <laughs> I just think yes. Well, it, it's, it's funny how sort of history sort of remembers people. Now, when yeah. the first series of, um, I don't know how, how many people of my age are out there, but uh, 1975, I think it was, was the first series of this programme, Some Mothers Do Have Them, which this was long before Impressionists got hold of the character, and yeah. Mike Yarwood particularly sort of simplified it a bit. But his, the extraordinary visual gags, the stunts, the thing with the, the, the mini hanging off the edge of the cliff, the roller skating underneath the, the lorry, the going around on roller skates and shooting out the door, the coming down the stairs on the wardrobe, all these sort of stunts done in front of a live audience were, were exhilarating. Yeah, yeah. Again, this is in a sort of world of... Um, I mean, the 70s was a very strong uh, year, a decade for sitcom, incredibly strong. 
uh, Steptoe and Dad's Army and Porridge and, and, and whatever. Um, but some moments of Adam really stood out as well as being sort of like a bit of a throwback to sort of the visual days of, of Keaton or Chaplin or whatever. But before it kind of got sort of mangled a bit, it was really sort of something. Yeah. yeah it was astonishing. Yeah. It, so it seems difficult to believe that now, maybe. <laughs> well, I remember it. I, did, I used to love it as a kid. It was, there was a sort of childishness to that character. Oh, yeah, totally. But you, you, you read in a paper that Mike... Uh, Michael Crawford yes. uh, would go for a run every morning. In yeah, the park. around um, Hyde Park. And Hyde Park, as you all know, is a huge park. Uh, so I would, I, one morning I went and sat on a park bench waiting for him to run past me. <laughs> <laughs> My parents had gone away, I think, on holiday um, without telling me. No, no, no. <laughs> um, and I was just on my own. And I sort of, he was in this, pr- he was in this uh, huge musical at Drury Lane called Billy which is a magnificent book by Keith Waterhouse, but it's kind of my story, but set in the north. So the, he's, it seems impossible for him because he's in the north, uh, and he, he meets a, a comedian, and, and Billy, you know, Billy Lyre, will he come to London? And that's the whole thing of it. So it was kind of... And so I saw him, and, it, and Michael Crawford, exhilarating stage performer. I mean, yeah. just really... Book by Clement Lafrenet, the people who wrote Porridge, Lightly Lads, music by John Barry. So it was a really good, classy... You know, it was an incredible, classy production. And I was just hooked on it. I just... I just if I, I read somewhere in an interview, I go run into Hyde Park every morning. So I just <laughs> sat on a bench near the Royal Albert Hall and got there about half past six in the morning and <laughs> waited to about, I don't know, probably half eight, nine, maybe. Oh. You know, you thought, well, he's not going to be back running now, is he? <laughs> <laughs> and then he but just you know. ran. Oh, well, that's somebody running towards me. And he's got a blue... Tr- no, that's not him. <laughs> so, but, yeah, but then you sort of... Even if he had a run past, yeah. which would be unlikely, you know, of course... <laughs> I wouldn't have said anything. <laughs> I'm certain there. What would I have said that would have said to him, I tell you what, I'm, come and be in the show tonight, or, or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever you imagine it's going to be. But it was just like, it's like contact with somebody that did it, but it, it's, I was a bit too overawed at that yeah. time. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I think that well, that feels to me like a play, there's another instance that's a bit like a play, but that feels like a play where the young Paul Merton... You know, it's waiting for Michael Crawford. It's sort yes. of like just a play of the young Paul Merton waiting for Michael Crawford who never shows up, or maybe just as you leave the bench, he runs past. That would be good. <laughs> and says, ooh, Betty. That would be uh, good. <laughs> but also, there's another play that I think is there to be written, which is Stuart, mm. Stuart Lee once went to interview Spike Milligan mm. in his house, mm-hmm. but Spike Milligan was having one of his episodes. Yes. So Stuart sat, sat downstairs for two hours waiting for him to mm. calm down and talking to his wife. Mm. And then in the end, his wife said, you're just going to have to go. He's not going to be able to interview mm. him. So that's kind of an, and that almost meeting well, was, of two he, generations. He, he but be, I know you met He Spike was on a cycle, so it depends on where yeah. you were. It, it, you know, cause he, he got shell-shocked in the war and yeah. stuff. Uh, uh, and so he was sort of, yeah, I mean... But it's the, sort of that, you know, it's that near meeting of those. It's, it's interesting when it's two different generations, mm. I think, as well. But that, mm. you know, Stuart Lee and Spy Milligan nearly meeting and then not meeting. And yes. Paul Merton, <laughs> Michael Crawford, who I presume you've met subsequently. No, never. Maybe not. No, never, no. Oh. I mean, he, he goes I, running in Hyde Park. You should go and wait down there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't wish to be mean, but does he still go running? <laughs> it's, it, it is sort of funny when you saw... I mean, I was a huge Man From U.N.C.L.E. fan, and I, I met Robert Vaughan. He came down to the comedy store, and it was unbelievable to meet Robert Vaughan. But w- w- you meet sort of... You know, occasionally you meet famous people, and it is always a surprise when they know who you are. I mean, it shouldn't be, perhaps, if you're, you know, but I, I, I don't often go to where there are famous people. So Richard Attenborough, I mean, you know, Richard Attenborough came up to me and said, I mean, it, you didn't want, I didn't know what to do with my face in the middle of this, because well, I thought we were going one way with this sentence, and it ended up somewhere else. So my face had a sort of contortion in the middle, where I had to sort of change expression quickly, and he said, you have made me. 
pee myself with laughter. <laughs> Mind you, I have got diabetes. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't imagine that in a million years, would you? But this is what Richard Attenborough would say to you. I mentioned it on Have I Got News For You the other week. I don't know if it went out. I didn't see that episode in the edit. But uh, Roger Moore. I met Roger Moore. For me, Roger Moore was the saint, you know, and then later, of course, James Bonner. It was at some sort of film award magazine do. Uh, Roger Moore, I think, perhaps recognised me and so came over to speak to somebody that he recognised. He made a beeline for me. And as he got to me, he just looked at me and said, I can hear fuck all in his ear. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you were given a selection of the things he's going to say, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, select, you wouldn't pick that one out, would you? Funny, though. But, well, and, but I, I, had a, I had a similar thing with you, uh, to, of, the, of the sort of hero worship thing, ah. and the, and the, because uh, you, I, you know, I was massively obsessed with the, the, the comedy I saw on TV, and, and then uh, and I saw you do a very... Uh, I was very obsessed with you. You did an early stand-up set, and I'd never seen anything like it because I'd been watching Python and stuff that was all scripted. And then something happened in the audience and you did this big... Suddenly veered off and did this. Yes, you, uh -huh. you remember the bit, don't you? Because it's about the, the coach part. I did talk to you about it once. But oh. then, do you remember? No, it? I don't. Do you not? Well, there was, it was, I, can't, I can't remember what the subject, but it was, it, I was just blown away because something happened and you clearly ad-libbed this really funny bit and I couldn't right. believe it. And then, you know, then it came to being like 1991 and I'd been invited to the Light Entertainment, uh, BBC Light Entertainment Christmas party because we'd done on the hour mm. that year. And then you were, you know, A, we were, the Beverly Sisters were there, kind of mm. incredible, you know. This the Beverly Sisters, yeah. It was an incredible array of people from, you know, hundreds of years. You get extremely excited. <laughs> it, I mean, if you don't know who these people are, obviously it's not exciting. But you see, you see Kenneth Walson home talking to Leslie Phillips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just think there's a compliment. I don't know. It's because we don't think of them as being real people. And suddenly they're talking to each other outside of each other's boundaries. I think know. it's just very exciting. When you're thrust into that word, it's very exciting. But yes. you were there, and then, but I was much too nervous to talk to you until I was very drunk. Yes. And then I came up to you and sort of stood there grinning and saying whatever yeah. name thing I said. Mm. And then the next year, I, didn't, I, I did the same thing again. <laughs> so I think for like, uh, like two many, or three uh, years, I would just come up to you. How many years do you think you did that for? <laughs> quite a long time. You're, you're saying three or four? <laughs> yeah, I think it was quite a while. There was, a, no there, there was a gap for a couple of years and you came back strong again. <laughs> I'm so I'm amazed I've got through this far without having had to have a drink uh, to get me to the point where I could talk to you. No, but you, but were very, you were very nice to be, given that I was this sort of dweeby little comedy fan kind of coming well, up The, the thing is, you should be. You know, yeah. it's, I can remember sort of like... Uh, this is a, 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 there's a footballer. Chelsea were, had, a, had a team in the 70s that were sort of a classy team. Not as like they are now, but they, you know, they weren't winning things, but they were a classy team. They had stars like Peter Osgood. There was a swagger about the Kings Road Chelsea. Now, there was a, a player for them it doesn't, it, called David Webb, who was like a solid centre-half. That's all you need to know about him. So, near where I live, Chelsea trained. So, one Monday afternoon, somebody said, let's go down with the autograph book. So, we went down with the autograph book, and the big players came out from, you know, the, the prac, you know, from training, and they'd been in the shower, and they'd got into their cars, and they drove off, and nobody would sign anything. One guy, the captain, Ron Harris, just signed RH, and he was afterwards going, well, if he can sign RH, why can't he sign Ralph, you know, why can't he sign <laughs> Ron Harris? Why can't he do his real name? You know, and David Webb came out, and there was like 10 kids there. He got into his car, he sat in his car, he wound down the window, and he he spent five minutes 
signing everything. Yeah. You know, backs of hands, bits of bus ticket. And I'm talking about this now 40 years later. Yeah. It meant it was important. Yeah. It meant something. It, 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 doesn't, it takes very little time. I've never, I've never said no to an autograph. I mean, I, you know, photographs you sometimes have to say if it gets down, you say, okay, quickly, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, but generally, no, because it's important and it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference to you to do And also, if you're skilled enough at it, if somebody's a fan of yours and they're gawping a little bit and they don't know what to say, you can put them gently on a conveyor belt and they don't know they're on the <laughs> conveyor belt. So you say, oh, hello, what's your name? Oh, I said, oh, you, you enjoyed it? Yes, fine. Can I have it? Have you got a phone? Yeah, oh, I have, your friend's got a phone. Hello, how are you doing? Good to see you. Nice to see you. Good Enjoy the rest of it. And it's, it's it, you know. And it's like 30 seconds, a minute or something. Yeah. And it's absolutely fine. And it's not a problem. It's, I just remember the disappointment of somebody that sure. you, it was a really good player. And this, this guy that signed was not the most glamorous player in the team by any stretch, but he was the only one that bothered. Yeah. You know. Well, it was very nice. You were very nice. I think you sent me a, a letter once we were on TV. Oh, it was a solicitor's letter. It was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Will you You're stop coming nice. up to me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm a big fan of yours. I lived in Somerset. We didn't get horses till 1948. <laughs> I better, ask you a couple, <laughs> I better ask you a couple of emergency questions, Paul, emergency to get myself out of the sure. embarrassment. Of, I'm going to pick some at random. Um, oh, I won't ask you that. That's too mean. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, they're all terrible. <laughs> These emergency questions, they're not yeah. living up to the, the billing. They aren't. I'll ask you this one first. Have you ever irked a postman? I yes, have. I have. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I was d- d- uh, doing sort of like, a, you know, the delivery, newspaper deliveries during the week, and there was this postman. We used to go down this sort of cul-de-sac, little flats here and there, and occasionally the postman would give me letters. You know, if you're going to number 34, can you post that through the thing, you know? So one time I tried to give him a Daily Express to post at number 54. <laughs> I'd got it wrong, the, t- the relationship between me and the postman. <laughs> I thought, you know, I was 12 years old, he was like double my age, 30 or something like that, you know, pals together in the workplace... Walk in the same streets. You never know how heavy the next package is going to be. <laughs> I remember one day delivering the Daily Express. Martin Borman found on every single newspaper because the, the Express were, were convinced in 1973 they'd found Martin Borman. Anyway, enough of this topical material. <laughs> Martin Borman, for fuck's sake. I was talking about Alexi doing Mussolini. I'm now working <laughs> Martin Borman material. How about this? I've never asked anyone this question. I'll never ask anyone again. Mm. Would you rather be able to turn your head like an owl or have a neck that telescopes up to the length of a gi- giraffe's neck oh, but no. can go back down again to normal Oh, no, will. definitely the second one. Yeah, the, the, the neck. Yeah, yeah, because you can always do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad question. <laughs> Is this on? You go to it, you went to a good school, didn't you? <laughs> what, the do they, what the fuck do they teach them? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about just a minute. Yes. Um, which I was, again, as was for you, I was, when I was a young man and a student, I would listen to that mm. in, the, in, the, in the kitchen and dream of being on it and then you've, you've managed to uh, through the scruples you managed to yeah, exactly. your way in me Nicholas yeah 
It is, yeah, it's wonderful. It, you know, kids generally like just a minute they get it because it's, it's very easy to understand what you, what you can't do, you know. Uh, it, it is difficult because certainly in the nature of public speaking or comedy, repetition, hesitation, deviation are all part of what you do, yeah. you know. Uh, so to suddenly not do that is, is a bit of a challenge. I mean, Ross Noble, I mean, Ross is an excellent player of the game, but on the last show that I heard last week, he, at one point he said, week after week after week. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, I always liken it to golf, you know, it, it doesn't matter how good you are, you'll always hit a bad shot, you know, yeah. you can't master it. And, that's a, and the point is not to master it, the point is for the, the, you know, the interventions and the challenges and all that sort of stuff, that's what it's about. Yeah, yeah of course. You know. I think the first time I did it, the first thing I said was, uh, so yeah. that was that. I've been so worried about repetition that I'd forgotten about hesitation. It's, it's, it's juggling the three things together. Yeah. But you're the, the second, you've appeared on the second most... Apart from Nicholas, of course, who's appeared, I think, on mm. pretty much every single one. Yes, he has. Um, no, he hasn't ever missed one. Um, Nicholas Parsons, actually, I don't know if you're aware of him, but he's actually one of the few entertainers working today. It's mentioned in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think... Last that, supper he was doing the cabaret. <laughs> if the impossible and unthinkable happened and mm. Nicholas was, for some reason, unable to carry on doing it... Mm. Would, the, would, would you be prepared to step over to the... Oh, no, I don't chair? think so. No, I wouldn't, ha- I wouldn't host it, because then you'd be sort of losing me as a contestant as yeah. well, or panellist, whatever we are. Um, no, I think it will sort of... Uh, I mean, <coughs> I'd had a meeting with somebody uh, that said, you know, should we, could, could I record something for Nicholas's obituary, you know? <laughs> uh, so if he suddenly died, they, they've got it there. And I, I said, no, that was 12 years ago. <laughs> 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 the person who asked me left the BBC five years ago. <laughs> and is dead. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> well, nobody lives after the BBC. <laughs> you do occasionally see obituaries that are written by someone who's already dead, don't you? Because they do get them out in it just, it, yeah, and That's I, a bit weird, isn't it? it? Does, well, it, it's... Yes, because you just... Yes, it seemed a bit... I think they were just worried, but, I mean, you know, it, it's just... They're not so worried now. He's, he's clearly invincible. So. It's incredible. I mean, it's just... The first time we did just a minute, he it was up in Edinburgh and he had quite a busy day and he tripped over a speaker. Oh, you were doing that one, yeah. Yeah, and uh, in, in the first show, and he like had a really bad fall, mm. and yet still got up and then did two episodes just a minute and was and he's so sharp on it nearly all the time. No, I mean he is so completely so you know at the age of ninety four this year. Uh, yes, indeed. Harold Lloyd hanging off the clock would came out four months before he was born, nineteen twenty three. Yes, but of course, Nicholas being Nicholas, the reason why he did fall over the speaker was he was hamming it up by looking at the audience as he came on (laughs) (laughs) and not seeing where he was going. But uh, no, he is, uh, you know, the legs are getting a little slow for him now, but uh, no, everything else is ticking along brilliantly. And it's just, he's brilliant casting for that. It's it's important, you know, it's important to have a chairman that says, no, 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 you you can't get away with that or whatever, you know, so it's... It feels as if it's about something, but it, what it's really about is just having a laugh in a, in a quiz f- or a, a parlour game format. Yeah, yeah it's, it's such a... Well, you would talk about in your book about working with Peter Jones, which obviously mm. you worked with him a lot on the show, but you did, he was mm. in a, one of the Hancock ones mm. you did, mm. and he, was, he did a Fist of Fun episode. It was sort of so exciting. Again, mm. I think I love comedy when it gets that intergenerational feel to well, it. Well, yes, I mean, there is sort of in comedy, you know, uh, people can still be respected at, uh, at an age where in other professions they might not be, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, it's uh, Bruce Forsyth. I mean, he's... he's, yeah. he's uh, I mean, it, it, people sort of laughed at him and stuff uh, once, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I totally admire what he does. I mean, there was, a, there was a moment in Strictly Come Down... I mean, it's... 
yeah, they've had to change the format a bit because actually what he was doing was going for sort of like real loud out belly laughs live Saturday night BBC One. There was no sort of laughter machine that could come in. So now they've adjusted it a bit so it's not quite so naked so the, perform- the presenters don't have to come out and do a gag straight away because, yeah. you know, the nature of doing a gag straight away, if it, if it doesn't work, it kind of sets a tone. And, and so it's... You've really got to be sure of what you're doing rather than risk. It's much better to say hello and welcome rather than a little e. You know, and then there's nothing, and then so they, you know, so it's better to be neutral. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's a, but again, you were you were. Have you ever seen the the, the the Bruce Forsyth and Norman Wisdom doing Sunday Night at London Palladium together? The no, two I don't of think them. So. It's on it's on a videotape or whatever they call it these days. Um, <laughs> just press a machine there and it comes out your ear or something. But um, there is the two of them. There was an equity strike. They belonged to the Variety and Artists Federation. So there was nobody could do the show apart. From these two guys said they would do it live TV. Right. And Norman Wisdom's abilities. I mean, he has a sort of poor reputation, I think, perhaps sometimes. But his physical abilities as a comedian were astonishing. And live TV, he does a thing at one point. You've got a grand piano at this side of the stage over there, polished top. He runs from over here and jumps astride the grand piano on his belly, belly falls off, turns as he's falling, so he lands on his back. Right. And this is live TV. He does one other thing. If I can, uh, can I stand up for a minute with this? Yes. Um, he does this thing where he's, had a, he's just had a situation with somebody here. He walks backwards. He keeps walking back. He doesn't do what I'm doing. He doesn't look down. He stops and he completely disappears down a trap door. <laughs> And, and at no point has he looked to see where he's going. What he's done, because I look back at it two or three times, is exactly 12 steps. Yeah. And he's an ex-army man. Right. So he's rehearsed it to the point where he knows, exactly. okay, I'm there. 12 steps back from here, all equal pace, blah, 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 gets me there, and he's gone. And what makes it funny, if he looks to see where he's going, we, we, are, we kind of guess something's going to happen. But yeah, yeah. he stands still and just disappears. Now, <laughs> is there a comic today that could do that? Well, no, no. <laughs> a circus clown might be able to do it. Yeah. An acrobat might be able to do it. But that kind of and, and this is remember, it's live TV. And if he doesn't get it right, it's it's a, it's the size of this table, the trap door, yeah, and he yeah. disappears down. Well, there was a lot. You know, there was a lot of craft in those in those. I and mean, a lot of them had worked on routines and a for TV. There was, but there was yeah. they, w- they wouldn't. They'd only do that. That would be all they did, wasn't it? One this was it. In those Obviously days, you, you, could, you could hone an act and do it. You could do the same act, you know, for forty years or something. It'd be yeah. like a twenty-minute act or something. So, yeah, people sort of settled into certain routines. So it, it wasn't necessarily better, but it was different. Yeah. Uh. Um. <laughs> <laughs> would you rather? How have tall is this giraffe? <laughs> <laughs> Really, I mean, you'd go, it'd be bad, you'd telescope up and you'd hit your head. Yeah. So, then maybe you should have chosen an owl after all. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm assuming I can see where I'm going as giraffe, so, well, but should be able to see where I'm going. Yeah, but you have to think about these things. Um, I remember the first Edinburgh I did was 1987, and I remember you, I was very excited about going to see your show, but I wasn't able to see your show that year. No. <laughs> because you'd, uh, you'd had, a, and you'd, you've had, in your book, there's quite a lot of incidents where you've got ill or broken legs yes, or, or, yeah. or had bad reactions to malaria medicines. Yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. And had periods of time where you've been put out of action. So you, yes. you broke your leg and you literally broke your leg going it, to Edinburgh. Yeah, we played that. football up at the... I went up to Edinburgh for the 87 festival, one-man show, did the opening night. That was okay, went all right. Oh, fine, opening, it was all right. Went out, played football the next day, fell over, broke my leg, went into hospital, which was luckily just, just up the road. 
came out of hospital after about three or four days, started getting really sort of sweaty and, and, and falling in and out of consciousness. Ambulance was called. I was around at somebody's flat because the flat that I'd been renting was right at the top of a huge block. So, I, you know, my leg in plaster, I had to be lying on somebody's floor somewhere. Uh, the, the ambulance, for some reason, took three hours to arrive. Uh, they kept phoning for this ambulance, and the amb this was back in 87, so it was just a landline. I think we didn't have, people had mobiles, maybe a few people had mobiles. Um, the ambulance turned up um, eventually. I got into it. Andy Smart, who was with me, uh, was just talking to me, and he came into me with the hospital. They thought, well, somebody should go in with me. So I then take to the hospital, and I'm lying on this, uh, on this hospital the sort of trolley in a little sort of alcove bit. And Andy is keen to get a bet on, on the 4.30 race at York. <laughs> And so he has a look at me, he looks at the time, and he, he just has a poke in a seat, and he sees the colour I am, and I'm sort of, kind of, sort of, kind of bluey sort of colour. And he attracts the uh, medical staff, and they whisk me off, and uh, I wake up the next morning, and uh, I've got these things going into my arm, little drips and things, and I've got an oxygen mask on. And I'm thinking, this is a funny sort of broken leg. It sort of uh, <laughs> seems to develop. And what that was was a pulmonary embolism, which is a sort of uh, blood clot uh, which formed uh, and get, went into my lung. Uh, heart or brain, it's sort of that's it, really. Um, but lung, you've got a sort of chance to survive. And so, uh, I, you know, uh, spoiler alert, I did. <laughs> uh, and while I was in hospital as well, I contracted hepatitis A, which um, one of the doctors said, well, to be honest, you probably caught it from the hospital food. <laughs> so <laughs> that was 1987. <laughs> but I had a review, it said one review on the one show I did, it said go and see this man, he's hilarious. And so people would queue up by the hospital bed, I'd show him the x-rays. <laughs> Allow some of them to take a bit of blood, you know. But I remember, it being, it was, I remember that being a big thing. And that was, I mean, it, it, it was, yeah, yeah it was quite big. 30, yeah, for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't realise how, quite, quite how close you'd come to pain. Oh yeah, it was, I mean, and sort of, you know, um, medical professionals, you know, doctors, nurses are fantastic, but occasionally when you meet somebody that, that isn't, you go, oh, for fuck's sake, do you really have to be like that? And this guy came up to me uh, the day after I woke up with the oxygen mask and he said, uh, I suppose you realise you nearly died last night. <laughs> So what, I, what can you say to that? I'm <laughs> awfully sorry to inconvenience you. <laughs> so of course, that, you know, it's, not, it's a funny way to find out. Yeah. But, um, you know, but yeah, so there was, that was that. But that, that was sort of, uh, I got, managed to get through it. And it was all about determination in the end and, uh, and just sort of getting better and, uh, you know, just keep going. You know? Yeah. But then you had also this, you had this instant where you had to go to the Morsley Hospital after you... Yes, indeed, yes. I was... Uh, we'd, we'd done, we did a Christmas version of just of uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway? I was going on holiday. I, 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 I went to um, Kenya, and I'd never been to Africa, and uh, it turned out to be a bit of a mistake, because in terms of the medication I was taking, I was taking this particular strong version of anti-malarial pills. Is it larium, I think it might be called? It's, it, it's something like that. Uh, and this was back in 1990, 89, 90, that new year. And um, I, was, I came back, I was convinced that I was being spied upon by uh, where I lived in the bedsit in Streatham. If I looked across the rooftops, I saw five, six rooftops away, some builders on a rooftop, but they weren't really builders because I could tell they weren't builders, because they weren't doing much building. They kept looking, kept looking to see where I was. So all this sort of thing was playing in your mind, you know. Uh, taxi drivers were sort of, if the colour purple might suddenly mean something. It, it, it was just, uh, I was just about to be, make uh, this television series with Channel 4. Um, was, something was wrong. Like we couldn't figure out what it was. 
Uh, and I ended up being taken to the morgue by my girlfriend at the time, who was very worried about me. I, I, I became convinced that I knew what was going to be playing on the radio. The next song is going to be, and I couldn't say it because I didn't know what it was. And then it would come on, I'd say, I knew it was going to be that, you know? <laughs> Uh, and stuff like that, uh, and I got taken there on a Saturday, and this guy's trying to assess me, and I'm just sort of just buzzing. I, it, 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 you know, really extraordinary, sort of like, you know, started talking about... Oh, my grandfather was an inventor. He invented a soft drink called Free Up, and then he made that better, and he called it Four Up. You can see where this is going. <laughs> and then you got the Six Up and gave up then, and it's a shame. You know, all this stuff was coming out of me. Yeah. Um, and it is, and so I, you know, I, I went into the Maudsley, and uh, the, the TV show got postponed for a year, which was fine. It happened didn't have a year later. That was fine. But it was it, so you're in a situation where you don't know what, what it is, and it was his anti-malarial pills. And my psychiatrist noticed that my behaviour changed on a Friday, because I was on a daily pill and a weekly pill. It was the weekly pill that was the problem. Yeah, and that was it. Really, it was. A, I, I, always, I always think of it as being that big, but it wasn't. It was <laughs> tiny, but the effect. It felt like it was that big. It yeah. just really knocks you out. And um, the first time I went in there, they were accidentally giving me the, the uh, weekly pill every day <laughs> for about three days. Um, so that was that was some, something. Um, <laughs> in the canteen, going into the canteen in the morning for breakfast, you have a choice. You have sort of like a hard-boiled eggs, which have all been peeled. So there's no shell, so, you know, shell can be sharp and hard. Uh, there's sort of paper, cardboard plates and plastic knives and forks and all this sort of stuff. And uh, one day there was a kid, I say kid, he was about 19, I suppose, I was about 30 then. And he'd recognise, because who's, cause the thing was, not only was I in this psychiatric hospital, but whose line is it anyway was going out every Friday on Channel 4 and they were watching it in the hospital, you know. <laughs> Uh, my psychiatrist that I was seeing in the hospital didn't watch it. He didn't know anything about it. It was very new at that point. Uh, so when he said to me, so uh, I said to him, well, uh, some of the patients are looking to be a bit strange. He said, well, why would that be? And I said, well, because they see me on television on a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Just Fridays is that? <laughs> <laughs> so this, this boy next to me, He's sort of like, you know, we all que we're queuing up for our sort of bran flakes or our hard-boiled egg, whichever, it's, whichever mood we feel our di digestive system is in. And uh, this boy, he says to me, he taps me on the shoulder, he says, uh, you're Paul Merton, aren't you? Uh, I said, uh, I, I felt responsibility, so I, I said, uh, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, I am, yeah. Um, don't tell anybody I'm here, it's a bit of a secret, but, you know, just, I'll be quiet. He said, oh, right, I can't tell anybody. And uh, after I wrote the book, uh, I, this was 30 years later, whatever it was, 25 years later, I, I was in Wimbledon, uh, not too far away from Denmark Hill, and um, this nurse came up to me and she, she said to me that the guy I'd spoken to, his name was John, and it just helped him enormously because he realised that it wasn't his fault that he was there. That it could, and this is the thing about mental health, you know, one of the things is that sort of when it happens to people, there is a sense, sometimes a sense of shame. If you can get rid of that shame, it's really helpful. But it really helped him, sure. you know, to sort of see that, that a man on the television, if he can be ill, then I can be ill, and it's not, it's not my fault, it's not a weakness. I mean, all equally, uh, when he said to me, are you Paul Merton? I could have said, yes, and I've jumped out of the television. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not denying that there wasn't a temptation. 
but you know, in those situations. But it, but it, it was really good just to find out that actually there was a amidst the sort of like difficult times for me, there was beneficial stuff happening yeah. around, you know, as well. Yeah, but, but also, I, when I kind of find it fascinating because I think with comedy anyway, you as a comedian, you're playing around on that. You're walking a tightrope between sanity and insanity in a way, right? I mean, so those jokes, well, are, those things you're saying are sort of yeah. jokes, aren't they? But they're, yeah. but they're, so a joke isn't too far away from, uh, you know, allowing yourself to You're changing to jump reality over. or you're usurping yeah. reality or doing something that sparks a comic reaction, yeah. yeah. And I think sometimes you're playing, I feel that sometimes, you know, I'm play, I, I play myself at snooker 80 times in my basement mm. and, you know, I'm in control of on it. On a six by three table. On a six by three table and I commentate <laughs> on it myself. I don't know five-year-olds that give you a game. <laughs> right. My daughter's nearly old enough now. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but, and I think also that's the weird thing about being a, a celebrity I and mean, sort of being, you know, a newish celebrity that if you are in a kind of paranoid state and you think people are watching you and talking about you, they are a little bit well, as well. well so yes, you know, so I, I sort of, back in 87, which was when I had all the broken leg stuff, uh, this, this show that you saw, Comedy Wavelength, on, yeah. on, B, on Red Channel 4, it, was, it, it ran for 10 weeks, so it got a, I got a chance to, be, to build an audience up over the course of you know, two and a half months. It's a long time. So it went from three million to four, I think, or something like that. But one of the first times I sort of, it affected my behaviour... And I realised afterwards just how silly and, and, and laughable the whole thing was. I'd left my sort of one-bedroom flat in Streatham, and I was walking down Streatham High Road towards Dadbrook Smith's. So I got there, and there was two sort of uh, young women who sort of saw me and started giggling and pointing, and I felt embarrassed. So I left Dadbrook Smith's, and they followed me out of Dadbrook Smith's. So I, I got on the bus to go back home. They got on the bus to get back home. Uh, not, not to get back home with me. But, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I then got off the bus at a stop earlier and then ran down the road so they wouldn't be able to follow where I lived. Got home, sweated, heart palpitation. It had been 35 minutes since I'd left the house to buy a paperback book. I had no book. <laughs> I was sweating in my living room on my own and I'd done it completely to myself. And I realised that actually... The funniest thing is, the easiest thing is that people, all you want to do is just wave and that's it. That's yeah. that people are just, just a moment of contact, just to say hello, oh, hello, you know, that's it. People are very happy with that, you know. Yeah. Um, it's just, just, you know, thumbs up sort of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I'm very jealous of you because you've got, I, I toured, I was touring on one of my tours and I bumped into you in Brighton. Yes. And yeah. uh, I drive myself around in a little VW Golf mm. and you've got a massive proper tour bus that you mm. travel around with the, the, your. But it's a good reason for it, although it seems extravagant. It's it, good, it, it I would do it if I could do it. I mean, if it was five of us... Yeah, uh, it'd be so weird if it was just me on my own in a bus, right? Yeah, well... And driving it around myself. <laughs> they, are, they are fantastic. It is like yeah. having your own train that goes wherever you want it to go, because yeah. it it has it's a double-decker, so yeah. there's sleeping compartments, a kitchen, a, a screen for DVDs, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But it, it, it makes sense, essentially. If you're sort of like, if you doing a gig in Leeds or somewhere like that and you leave Leeds at half past ten, you can be back in London by half one, half two in the morning, whatever it is, something like that. You haven't paid hotel bills for five people. It's better to get back to London, get back to your own bed and wake up there than it is to wake up in a hotel somewhere else. Sure. You know, so actually, although it looks completely over the top, it, it, it just about breaks. It makes, a, it makes about the same. It looked like a lot of fun. Oh, it's fantastic. No, really. <laughs> and some venues, you know, like the backstage facilities aren't particularly great. I mean, here it's like a palace. I mean, this is nothing. <laughs> you want to see what it's like back there. Prince Charles comes back here, doesn't he, when he wants to feel somewhere posh. You want to see it back here. It's wonderful. 
Anyway, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it, it, sometimes some of the venues aren't particularly good, and so you could use the buses, you know, you get a hung hour, um, get an Indian takeaway or something. Yeah. So you sit on the bus, and just say it's all very sociable. With a group of you making up impro, making up comedy for two hours, it helps if you all get on really well. Of course. That's yeah. the key thing, really. Uh, you know, I've been in impro groups where two people haven't got on well, and every scene they do is an argument. <laughs> happens within moments so you know it might be a joyous occasion the birth of a new baby oh what a beautiful baby oh yes you'd know all about babies wouldn't you since you killed those children all those years ago <laughs> what do you mean you know you were the one you know, you know whatever so yes it's sort of it, you have to have harmony because you can always yeah. fake not fake but you can always play anger but you can't always fake joviality. But your, your partner, your wife is mm. in the group as well Suki yeah yeah, yeah absolutely. so I mean that yeah. must be there must be times when you've had a had a little Tiff, maybe? Little Tiff. <laughs> Look at these questions from 1956. <laughs> Have you had a little Tiff, Marilyn Monroe? Um, uh, well, no, it's easier, though, isn't yeah. it? Because if we do... It, the thing about the impro is uh, there's no set script. So if you say to somebody afterwards who wasn't there, what was it like? Oh, it was this bit when the cowboy came on and then the... You know, and it doesn't sound like anything because it isn't anything. It's yeah. ephemeral. It's gone. Uh, if she's at home and I come home at half past one from Leeds, what was the show like? Oh, it was like this. You know, it, that, that's kind of potentially the breakup of a relationship because <laughs> yeah. you're not doing the same thing at the same time and there's no way of explaining and it, I'm not social hours. If you're doing it together, then yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's great. You know, it, it really works. Uh, would you go back to... I don't think you will, but will you go back to stand-up? or is it? Is no, I mean, it, I loved stand-up when it was the... Uh, when the early days of the cabaret circuit, when you'd be like one of five people on the bill, you know? So you're one of five acts, so you'd go to the bar afterwards with the other acts that have been on or haven't been on. And it was very sociable and all that. The, the thing about, I've, I've done it before being on stage uh, an hour, and just by yourself, and I don't, I don't, I don't like it. I, I, right. want, I want a comedy butler to come on. <laughs> I want somebody to hand me a, a piece of paper that's completely blank and say to me something like, you know what it means. <laughs> or I don't know, but something that's not just the sound of my own voice. You know? yeah. But yeah. Other, people, other people are really skilled at that. But for me, I'm always looking for entrances and exits. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, I really understand what you mean, and I can see why you would prefer what you're doing, and you're awesome what you're doing, but it's, it also seems a shame when you do that little stand-up and everyone goes, oh, wow, that was good and exciting. Yeah, but it's, you know, I yeah. mean, I, I always found it really difficult to write stand-up as well. I mean, that yeah. policeman on acid routine, as I called it, was, was something that took, still took six weeks to get, but yeah. I mean, it used to take forever. I think really, in the, during the 80s, I really, I mean, the standard is like a 20-minute act. I think I had a really shit-hot 17 and a half minutes. <laughs> I'm not sure I ever got to 20 because I at the comedy store they have this light on stage which only the act can see which is this red light that flashes on to tell you you know stop you're going too far and all the times I played the comedy store I never saw that red light <laughs> and when it was explained to me it had been there since 1979 I was gobsmacked no I, I never had uh, I, I, I never but, the, but that was it didn't come to me naturally. Improvising with other people, uh, it's like ad-libbing at school or something with your mates. Yeah. Somebody says something, you base something on that, you react off that, somebody else says something. On your own, that's something I'm not so easy... I, I'm not very fluent. No. Well, um, it's a... I, you know, I understand what you're saying. It seems like it's So you a, want me to do a stand-up tour? I want tour you to do a stand-up so tour, tour on your own. I can go on my arse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like stuff. I don't know why you're still working now. <laughs> I want to drive your own bus around. Drive my own bus around, yeah. And, and do you think you... Is, have I got news for you going to carry on for forever? No, it's going to stop next week forever. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't tell you that, really. <laughs> Are you still enjoying it? Because there was a point where you weren't enjoying it, I think. 
that yeah, you stopped I mean, for a little while? Yeah, I mean, sort of, yeah, that was a long time ago, but it's like one of these things, you, it, it's got such a huge audience that, that love the show, and it's, it, sometimes it's hard to do, sometimes it's easy to do, but it's a, it's a dream gig, so, you know, I, I, if, it's one of those things, you can't afford to start getting sort of like, oh, God, I've got to do this again. Well, there's plenty of people who'd love to do it, so, you know, I, I only have to sort of, you know, say, oh, well, you know, and it's, it's important, you know, the morale boosting of comedy is very important, so yeah. the comedians, has to kind of, they have to kind of be up, I think. Yeah. yeah. All right, I'll ask you an emergency question at random, then we'll, we'll, have, to, we'll have to finish, because I've got to do another one. It's yeah. minute. Um, <laughs> Who are you interviewing next? I'm interviewing next week. Uh, people are going to wait till next week. Uh, it's, Joe, it's Joe Thomas from the uh, In Between Us. And oh, yeah. Yeah, he's nice. He seems never like a nice I've never met him, but <laughs> so I'll see him next week. Uh, Here's a quick David Bowie story that I heard tell you tell once. <laughs> okay. He was doing it in the early days of Ziggy Stardust. He's in one of his documentaries, so if, you, if you're a big Barry fan, you might already know this. Uh, talking about backstage stuff. And he was, doing, he was talking about the early days of Ziggy Stardust and trying out some sort of tryout gigs. And they might have been somewhere sort of in the north somewhere, Hull perhaps, Huddersfield, somewhere like that maybe. And uh, working men's clubs, it's all a bit primitive backstage. And David's got all the Ziggy Stardust gear and it's all sort of zipped up and everything. And he's, he's just about to go on. And he says to the guy backstage, excuse me, where can I, is there, is there, the gents, is there a sort of, he says, you see that sink at the end of the corridor? That's your loo. He says, I can't go there. And he says, listen, son, if it's good enough for Shirley Bassey, it's good <laughs> enough for you. Well, I think we'll leave it on a laugh. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Paul Merton. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Thanks again for listening to the podcast. RichardHerring.com slash fallback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs for all of the information on the tour. GoFasterStripe.com for lots of downloads and books and lots of fun. Thanks for listening. Go and listen to another one. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your friends about the tour. I love you all. I'm out.